0: Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, the global odyssey of migratory birds with Scott Widensall and his new book, A World on the Wing. Scott Widensall is one of the most respected natural history writers in the USA. He has written more than 30 books, including Living on the Wind, Across the Hemisphere with Migratory Birds, a Pulitzer Prize finalist. He's a contributing editor to Audubon magazine and a columnist for Birdwatcher's Digest. He's an active field researcher specialising in bird migration, co-director of Project OwlNet, and he directs Project Snowstorm. And he has received numerous awards, including the Audubon Award for Environmental Writing. And he was recently elected as a fellow of the American Ornithologists Union. And today we're going to talk about Scott's latest book, A World on the Wing, The Global Odyssey of
0: Migratory Birds. Scott, welcome to Little Atoms. Well, thank you so much for having me, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: First of all, I want to talk to you about, before we talk about the book, I understand that this very week you've been out on a research trip. And so tell us what you were doing, if you can.
0: Yes, it was one of those moments where at one point I thought, there is a plausible chance I could die tonight. not, not a high chance, but a plausible chance. I was with a group of shorebird researchers, um, wader researchers, as you'd say in the UK, on the coast of South Carolina. Um, they're studying what has proven to be the perhaps the largest wimble roost in the world. Wimbles are these beautiful species of curlew. They migrate between northern South America and the high Canadian Arctic, and they gather every spring and fall. On a small offshore island off the coast of South Carolina near Charleston, about 20,000 of them. Now, wimbrels are kind of like the big game of shorebirds, and I'm always excited if I see half a dozen. And to see 20,000 of them gathering at this nocturnal roost was a little bit like seeing a, the ghosts of Eskimo curlews, which were once as common as passenger pigeons in North America and were driven to extinction in the late 19th and early 20th century. So this was this was an extraordinary thing to see. But we were trying to catch some of these Wimberls to put satellite transmitters on them to understand their, their migration. And we were working on this remote offshore sandbar, basically miles offshore in the middle of the night, as severe thunderstorms were moving across the landscape. And we stayed out there longer than we probably should have. And the wind was rising, there was lightning on three on three horizons as we were, you know, coming back into shore in, you know, a couple of open Boston whaler boats, ten of us, um, driving rain, high wind, um, lightning flashing everywhere. It's really not a smart thing to have done, but um, that's what makes wildlife research exciting.
1: I said that you were the author of another book on migration, Living on the Wind Across the Hemisphere with Migratory Birds, which came out roughly 20 years ago. So, Let's talk about why you've decided to revisit the subject now. A couple of things. We'll talk about changes that have happened in the science and technology of studying migratory birds in a moment. But first of all, I want to talk about what changed for you.
0: Yeah, because when I, well, first of all, I have to say, you know, I kind of came out of the womb as a museum quality nature nerd and birds in particular have always been a a driving passion of mine. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I grew up in the mountains of Eastern Pennsylvania, close to the world's first sanctuary for birds of prey, a place called Hawk Mountain along the Kittatinny Ridge. And, you know, as. The 12 year old sitting there entranced on this high ridge top, this high windswept ridge top, watching hundreds and hundreds of hawks and eagles and falcons passing in the course of a single day. I got hooked on migration. But when I wrote living on the wind in the working on that in the early and mid-1990s it was very much as a passionate interested outsider looking in i was very involved in bird banding bird ringing um, particularly birds of prey working you know trapping and banding hawks and, and other raptors but that was sort of the extent of my direct involvement in bird migration research but in the 20 some years since then I've become much more directly involved engaged in well for example we have something called project snowstorm where we're using high-tech GPS-GSM transmitters to follow the movements of wintering snowy owls coming down from the Arctic into southern Canada and the northern United States. I'm working with colleagues in the National Park Service in the tundra of Central Alaska, Denali National Park, deploying, again, tiny, tiny little tracking devices on many of the the migratory songbirds that winter in the park, that winter as far away as Southern South America and um, the islands of of Southeastern Asia and the the Western Pacific. Uh, You know, so I've I've gotten just much more directly involved in the boots on the ground, you know, in the trenches study of, of bird migration. And so this new book is much about my journey deeper into the heart of migration research and the firsthand opportunity to learn these new things about migration as about the science of migration itself.
1: You talk in the book about, as you said, you being a, a young man and visiting Hawk Mountain and and just seeing that, you know, realizing that these hawks that you were looking at had traveled huge distances to be there. And just as an aside, you talk about, you know, what, what you and your family call Goose Day. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, um, the appearance of the of, of the can geese i have a very similar thing here which i call swift day uh, which is the the first appearance Well, we've just moved house at the back end of last year closer into london and so i'm I'm sort of waiting on tenterhooks to see because it hasn't happened yet whether or not the swifts arrive here and i can see them from home as i could from from my old place but um yeah, I very much felt goose day when I read about
0: it. Well, and I think that you're, you know, we're both touching on something here that's that's immensely old in us as a species. Mm. I mean, we've, I'm sure that, you know, 100,000 years ago, we were, we were huddled in our rock shelters and scratching our fleas, you know, collectively speaking, and watching the movements of cranes and waterfowl and swifts overhead marking the passage of the season this is something that we've been aware of and attuned to for the entirety of our existence as humanity and it's frankly it's a shame that you know more and more people are disconnected from that and i think one of the silver linings of the pandemic lockdowns of the last year were that many people who had otherwise paid no attention to nature in general or birds in particular were suddenly aware of the fact that there was this you know, this changing regimen of birds passing through their backyards. And in the sudden silence of the cities, you know, you could hear bird song. And if we as conservationists are smart, we will grab this moment by the lapels and not let it go. Because a lot of people who didn't connect with nature before connected with nature through the pandemic, and many of them through birds and bird migration.
1: Well, I wanted to talk about how the technology of of tracking birds has developed over the years not just in the you know in the in the last 20 years since you know since you've you written the previous book but um in terms of things you've already just mentioned like the the tiny little transmitters but obviously like rigging technology changed over the years but of course another thing is and obviously is sort of relevant as to what you just said about the pandemic is crowdsourcing is like people using using apps to record what they're seeing at home
0: Oh, I mean, all of this has come together in, in really dramatic ways, and tied into that, and just and almost as importantly, is the explosion in computing power, which has given us ability to crunch these numbers and understand and interrogate these enormous data sets in ways that we never could before. So, as far as you know, the development of the technology, you know, the most fundamental way we have of following the movements of migratory birds is putting a small, lightweight, numbered leg band on the bird, um, and this is something that goes back inadvertently back to the Middle Ages. Some you know royal falcon that escaped from Frederick II, you know, flew halfway across Europe and, you know, it was the first time that anybody had a clue that these birds were moving huge distances. Bird was found again with, you know, an engraved ring on its leg that said it was imperial property. In the early 1800s, John James Audubon in the United States began, not from any systematic method, but you know, putting light silver wire on the legs of eastern phoebes that were nesting in a cave on his father's estate in Pennsylvania, and um, you know was delighted to see that the same birds came back the next year. About a hundred years ago, systematic bird banding began uh, both in in Europe and the United States, and for most of the last century, that's how we've understood not just bird migration, but most. Concrete things we know about the lives of wild birds: whether they come back to the same place every summer to breed, whether they go to the same place every year in the winter, whether they have the same mates every year, how long they live—all of that comes from marking these birds in some fashion as an individual, kind of lifting them out of the anonymity of the wild. And you know, particularly since World War II, we've developed increasingly sophisticated, increasingly miniaturized ways of putting tracking devices on birds, either transmitters that will send a signal that we can pick up remotely, and I have spent more nights than I can think of, um, would prefer to think of, you know, chasing like little northern sawwood owls through the woods of the mountains of the Appalachians with a handheld radio receiver and a directional antenna trying to figure out where the damn thing's gone. Or what are known as data loggers, which don't transmit anything, but they're just constantly recording data. Like for example, what are known as light sensitive geolocators, which are tiny, tiny little devices that have a light sensor in them, a microchip to store data, a little clock. And basically all they do is they record light levels. 24 hours a day and record the time. And you can see sunrise and sunset. And through some not terribly complicated math, you can figure out the rough latitude and longitude of where that bird was every day, as long as you're able to catch that bird the next year when it comes back to its breeding grounds or its wintering grounds, which is often the rub because you know sometimes they disappear, sometimes they die in migration, sometimes they move to a different place. And I've spent a lot of time, for example, in in the wilderness of central Alaska trying to recapture thrushes and warblers and sparrows that we had put geolocators on the previous year in order to to get that data back. And all of this together with, as you say, observational databases like eBird at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology in the United States, where a hundred million checklists a year come in from birders all around the world, building this enormous data set of what birds are where and in what numbers. Then you can layer and on top of that, the data from the Doppler radar weather uh, radar system, which in addition to being really good at showing us where precipitation is, also is really good at showing us exactly where and in what numbers birds are flying and migrating through the night sky, which is when most birds migrate. So you know, we've we just got this fire hose of information coming at us now that is finally allowing us to see migration at the depth and in the rich detail that it's, that it's actually occurring, mostly in the night sky hidden from our eyes.
1: So the book starts in the Denali National Park, you're taking part in this um, in this project, which I just wanted you to tell us a little bit more about. But it begins again with another one of these, uh, one of those nights I could have died that you described <laughs> at the beginning with. Birding seems to be a lot less a sedate hobby than I think most people <laughs> imagine it is.
0: Well, it depends on where you're birding, I suppose. And when you're birding in places where you are not at the top of the food chain, that can certainly be the case. Uh, yeah. So we've been, it's a project called the, uh, the Critical Connections Project that um, my good friend, Carol McIntyre from the National Park Service and I started with another friend about uh, eight or nine years ago. And our goal is to understand what's known as the migratory connectivity of the birds that breed in Denali National Parks. So This is a six million acre wilderness park in the heart of Alaska, the, the highest mountain in North America, um, you know, Denali is more than twenty thousand feet tall, and the birds that breed there. Literally spread out over three quarters of the Earth's surface on their migrations every year. They migrate to North America, South America, the Caribbean, um, the islands of the Pacific. They migrate some of them to Africa, some of them to Asia. And understanding exactly where the birds that breed in the park go and the routes that they take to get there is is critical for protecting them. You know, this is Denali National Park is a very well protected gigantic piece of land, but the birds that breed there only spend about two and a half months of their lives there every year. So their fates are bound up with all of these other places around the world to which they go. So we're trying to understand those travel routes and those and those destinations. But it's also a place with a lot of big animals, including grizzly bears, and most especially grizzly bears, lots and lots of grizzly bears. And so we are very careful when we're working in the park to, um, you know, to be bear aware, as uh, my friend Carol likes to say. So we make a lot of noise so we don't startle bears. And by the way, not just bears, there's also a lot of moose in the park. And moose may look big and ungainly, but but they actually put more people in the hospital in Alaska every year than bears do. A female moose with a calf or two is 1,200 pounds of protective maternal fury. And so we don't want to startle or scare any of these animals. We make lots and lots of noise when we're working, especially in thick brush. But you know, every once in a while, you get sloppy, and you get complacent, and one morning um, in our, the first year that we were working um, in the park, we had gotten up at you know one o'clock in the morning, like we usually do. It doesn't really get dark at that time of the year in the subarctic, so it doesn't really matter what time you get up. And we'd driven deep into the into the park along this little ninety mile gravel road that bisects it, and we'd set up our mist nets in thick. Willow cover and made lots of noise and been very bear aware and then we walked up the hillside and stretched out on the luxuriously soft tundra and we're sitting there talking quietly for twenty minutes or so until it was time for me to go check our mist nets to see if we'd caught any of the birds that we were targeting and I would no sooner walked down the hill into this thicket and one of my friends turned to say something to the other friend and about fifty feet away out of a ravine popped a female grizzly bear with a cub which is like the worst situation you want to be in. And the three of them stood up, the bear instantly charged, got within a few feet of my friend Ian Stenhouse. And Ian and another friend said they could both at the same moment see the they could see the second when the bear changed her mind from, I am going to maul these humans to, I'm not going to maul these humans. And then she turned and ran down the hill into the thicket where I was. And you have to understand, you know, this all happened in a matter of just a few seconds. You know, they see the bear, the bear charges. I hear them screaming, you know, hey, bear, hey, bear, hey, bear, which is the universal warning. I heard the sound of what sounded like somebody banging two big pieces of wood together, which was the hollow popping sound of a grizzly bear clashing its jaws in anger. I assumed the bear was in the thicket where I was, because that's usually where you encounter a bear badly. And so I froze and then they started screaming for me to you know get the hell out of there. And as I was running out of the thicket, the bear and her cub were crashing through in the other direction, probably only about seven or eight feet from me. I, I did not see them, but I could hear them and I could smell them as they went past. And I came rushing out one side of this thicket and they came exploding out the other Side and running hell for leather over the hills. Yeah, it was, it got the heart pumping. Um, my friend Ian, who's from Glasgow, um, I, I found him a little bit later, kind of staring off with this amused smile in his face, looking in the direction where the bears went. And I said, What are you smiling about? He said, Oh, he said, I didn't know my sphincter muscle was that strong. But, you know, we caught the thrushes that we were looking for. In fact, I think the bears probably flushed him into the net and we went back to what we were doing. But You know, when we're working in the park, we see bears almost every day. And I want to stress that, generally speaking, the bears know we're there. We know the bears are there. We give each other a wide berth. The bears of Denali National Park are remarkably tolerant around humans as long as humans don't do something stupid like we did. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend.
1: Listen to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Scott Wiedensoul and we're talking about his new book, A World on the Wing, The Global Odyssey of Migratory Birds. And Scott, so I've got my um, my Sibley Guide to Birds here, and I've just looked up a grey-cheeked thrush, which is not something I was uh, familiar with before. I mean, to people in Britain, it looks very much like a, uh, a song thrush, like a you know, very beautiful, but quite common, unassuming bird that everybody will be familiar with. So... You've just caught some in your mist net in the Denali National Park and attached one of these tiny little transmitters to it. Let's talk about where that thrush's journey might take it.
0: Well, we know specifically where that thrush is going to go. In fact, we have one thrush that we've caught now—caught him five times—and we've and we've got four complete migration cycles from them using geolocators and what are known as pinpoint GPS tags, which take a limited number of very, very precise GPS locations at preset intervals. And this particular thrush departs from Denali, one of the most remote wilderness areas in North America, flies southeast across Canada, south through the, the heartland of the United States, migrates nonstop across. The the Gulf of Mexico about a 600 mile journey down to the Yucatan Peninsula follows the curve of Mesoamerica through Panama and then into northern South America and spends the winter in about 60 acres or so of extraordinarily remote, pristine rainforest in the Orinoco Basin at the very southern border of Venezuela. So it goes from one of the most remote wilderness areas in North America to one of the most remote wilderness areas in South America, and does so en route. You know, stopping off in little woodlots behind suburban subdivisions in the state of Indiana. Um, so you know, passing over the homes of hundreds of thousands or millions of people en route that have no idea that this little thrush that weighs you know 35 or 40 grams is making this extraordinary migration back and forth every year. And in fact, those you know all those people in all those homes in North America, Europe, all around the world are unaware of the fact that every year billions and billions of birds are passing overhead through the night sky. And what would, I think, if we, could, if we could see in the dark, would be the single greatest natural spectacle on Earth. The numbers are almost hard to wrap your head around. I mentioned before that because of Doppler radar, we know precisely how many birds per cubic meter of airspace are migrating over the United States every year. And in fact, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology has a website called BirdCast um, that will give you nightly migration. Forecasts and real-time radar outputs, and it will calculate how many hundreds of millions of birds are in the night sky at any given moment during the spring and fall migration. I was looking at it the other night because I was leading some. I was doing some bird guiding on the coast of Georgia, and it was 574.6 million birds, basically half a billion birds in flight that particular night in eastern and central North America, where the the radar coverage is most complete. So, that, I mean, the numbers are just really mind-boggling. And most of us are completely unaware of it.
1: And this is this is not a, a rare bird. This is a bird that's endemic to large parts of, of the United States. So you talk about how that bird that you caught five times has a very distinct migratory pattern. It follows the same route each time. But not all of these birds do. Different populations have different routes, don't they?
0: That's right. And, and that's that migratory connectivity that we were talking about before. That distinct breeding populations in the north will have distinct wintering areas in the south in many cases. And and yes, I mean the gray cheek thrushes from western Alaska, central Alaska are taking a very different route than the gray cheek thrushes that breed in Newfoundland, for example. Same species, and ultimately many of them going to the same general area. All of those gray cheek thrushes are wintering in the forests of northern South America, but those from our study area in Alaska are probably wintering in different different. different parts of the Orinoco Basin and Amazon Basin than, say, great-cheek thrushes that breed in the central Canadian boreal forest or in the forests of of northern New England. We don't really know yet because there just hasn't been that much work done on that particular species. But Another North American species of thrush, the wood thrush, has a huge range, basically all of Eastern and Central, Eastern Central United States and and Southern Canada, but all of them winter in a very restricted area of Southern Mexico and Northern Central America. And in within that very small area, there are very distinct regional, like for example, the wood thrushes that breed in New England winter primarily in the mountains of Southern Honduras and Northern Nicaragua. Those from the American Midwest winter primarily in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. And so from a conservation perspective, this is very powerful information because the regional populations of many of these birds are declining or increasing or stable at different rates. We've never really understood why. And it may be because, well, I mean, the birds wintering in this particular part of Mesoamerica may be suffering from a much greater degree of deforestation than others, just to to pull one example out of a hat. So understanding migration and migratory routes and that the stopover points that they're using along the way from a conservation perspective is critical. And in fact, migration remains the biggest black box for migratory birds. It's the part of their annual cycle about which we know the least, and except that we know it's the most dangerous time of the year for them. So if we're going to reverse the really substantial declines that we've been seeing worldwide in migratory birds, we need to understand that part of their life cycle much better So we know where to put our limited conservation dollars and efforts to try to reverse that.
1: And this is, I mean, in just our lifetimes, there has been an absolute colossal collapse of, you know, I'm thinking particularly in the UK of songbirds, for instance. I mean, I'm sure it goes across, you know, all types of birds, but we have seen like a a huge collapse in numbers in a lot of ways people have just no real idea why it's happening but this seems i mean this migratory paths almost seem like there could be a good poster animal for for campaigns around climate change in that as you said you know we're not talking about oh we need to save our local forest because there are birds there but all of these other forests along this very long journey
0: Sure. And that's why migratory bird conservation is, you know, I'd say right up there with climate change, one of the most complex conservation challenges that we face because these birds are not respecters of boundaries and borders. They're moving, in some cases, they're moving, you know, 100,000 kilometers a year, depending on the species. And so trying to wrap your head around what has to be done to protect those birds and safeguard them along such extraordinary routes are very, very, very difficult. But I take solace from the fact that the birds are have shown themselves to be exceptionally resilient. You know, you mentioned great declines in birds, you know, here in, in North America. 2 years ago, the top ornithologists in Canada and the United States crunched enormous data sets, you know, Christmas bird counts, breeding bird surveys, Doppler radar data, all of these different things and and came up with a figure of about 2.9 billion birds, basically a third of North America's avifauna that has disappeared since 1970, you know, since I was in junior high school. You know, so that's depressing, obviously that's that's bleak and grim, but I almost take comfort from the fact that that means that we've managed to hang on to two thirds of our birds during a time of you know really astounding change and significant environmental degradation and you know a i don't know doubling of the tripling of the of the human population on this planet. If you give birds. Even the slightest, little bit of a leg up, they have a resiliency. I think that we often underestimate. So while the news is grim, that's not to say that that we can't turn this around. Uh, if we give birds half a chance, they'll come back. And in fact, that same study that showed that we'd lost a third of North America's birds in the last 30 years, you know, some groups of birds, like grassland birds, you know, farmland birds, are in desperate trouble. It's certainly the case in the UK and in many parts of Europe as well. But at the other end of the scale, waterfowl and wetland birds, wading birds like you know, herons and egrets and ibises have rebounded dramatically in the last 40 or 50 years and that was because in north america we you know we recognized what was happening pr- primarily to waterfowl populations because they're game they're popular game birds and we poured a huge amount of money and time and resources and concerted political will into protecting and restoring wetland habitats and those birds bounced back in a big way. And we can do the same thing, for example, for grassland birds, if we put the same kind of care and attention and resources into restoring and protecting and enhancing grassland and agricultural habitats for birds. So, you know, we can turn this around. We know what the score is now. And um, we know that the the hour is late, but we can still do this.
1: So we talked about the grey-cheeked thrush and its, you know, its epic journey only part of which is is over water. Most of it is over land. In the book, you travel, you talked about being in South Carolina just this week, but you... um... Go just a little bit further up the Atlantic coast to the uh, to the Outer Banks in the book, and which is a great place for studying seagoing birds, uh, pelagic birds, birds that spend most of their life at sea. Not just birds that you know. There are some obvious, you know, the Arctic tern, Sooty shearwater, birds that are absolute stars of of the migration charts. Tell us something about what you were doing here on on the Outer Banks.
0: Right. So the Outer Banks, because the coast of North Carolina sticks. So far out, the Gulf Stream sweeps so close to shore there. It's the easiest place, certainly along the Atlantic coast of North America, to get out into deep water among birds that spend very, very little of their time within even a rumor of dry land. Petrels and shearwaters waters and storm petrels and, um, and, and the like. And so I was I was out there with um, a fellow named Brian Patterson, who's been running. He's a charter boat charter boat fishing captain, but he's also an avid birder and has been running pelagic uh, bird watching trip out of Hatteras Island on the Outer Banks for many many years, and has really kind of written the book on what we know about pelagic birds in that part of the the Gulf Stream in the Western Atlantic. And you know we're still making we, we don't even know we don't even know how many species are out there. For example, I was. I had contacted Brian and said, hey, look, I'm, you know, working on this book and I'm the last frontier for migration research is pelagic birding. What's the best time to come on one of your trips to see something dramatic and unexpected? And he said, well, you know, late May is the time to do that. Well, unfortunately, late May, early June is when I'm in Denali, usually working on our field work up there. And so I was not able to go on his May trip, which figures because they saw a Tahiti petrel, which is like not even in the right ocean. They breed in Tahiti, for God's sake. You know, they've been seen a few times off, like, you know, theoretically off the coast of Costa Rica on the Pacific side. But, you know, the thing is, we don't even know what, quote unquote, the right ocean is for a lot of these birds. You know, we we find new breeding colonies on these remote islands in the middle of nowhere, you know, way out in the Atlantic or the Pacific that we didn't know were there. You know, and about two years ago on one of Brian's trips, they and and more recently saw the same bird a second time or or perhaps a second individual saw a, you know, a pelagic bird, a, a, a petrel that doesn't fit anything in any of the field guides. So they don't know if this is a undescribed plumage for a known species or a, they call it the WTF petrel because that was the reaction. You know, what, what the bleep is that? The Whiskey Tango Foxtrot petrel. We don't know what's out there, which I just find, I take great joy in that, you know, in the, the fact that the world is still big enough that, you know, we, we haven't mapped everything. We haven't plotted everything. Uh, that that sense of discovery is still is still fresh. And in you know, these pelagic seabirds, they cover such such remarkable distances. Um, I, I spent a lot of time on the Gulf of Maine where there are breeding Arctic terns. And when I wrote Living on the Wind 20 some years ago, you know, we, the assumption was that Arctic terns migrate 22,000 to 25,000 miles a year. And that was just based on drawing, you know, that we know they breed the highest latitudes in the northern hemisphere. We know the winter in the southern ocean, draw some lines on the map, that's what you come up with. But they were too small to actually put any kind of tracking device on. Well, a few years ago, my friend Ian, the guy that got charged by the Baron Denali, was part of the team that put geolocators on Arctic terns in Greenland and Iceland and discovered that they were flying 47,000 miles a year. And then somebody in Denmark did the same thing and found they were going 51,000 miles a year from that population. And the Arctic terns that breed in the Gulf of Maine have been tracked now 57,000 miles. Birds from Maine are wintering in the Indian Ocean, for heaven's sakes. And it's just the The distances are just staggering and mind-blowing and and humbling. I mean, the fact that a semi pominated sandpiper can take off from the the northeastern coast of Canada, fly 3,300 miles nonstop across the Western Atlantic Ocean to the northeastern coast of South America, a journey that will take it four or five days of continuous nonstop flight and is the equivalent of a human being running 126 consecutive marathons. And for a shorebird, for a wader, that's like middling. That's not even epic. Every time I hear somebody talk about birds as natural athletes, it's like anytime you compare a bird to a human athlete, you're insulting the bird. You know, the human runner that broke the four hour record for running a marathon was described as superhuman, which is true, but it's distinctly sub-avian.
1: Let's finish off then talking about how they do it. And there's some very up-to-date research and ideas in the book that are based around the ideas of quantum entanglement. What's the sort of latest on how birds navigate
0: so we've known for many, many years that birds have a whole you know they're alive to a whole series of senses that we're blind deaf and dumb to that they that they use the night sky the the, the celestial orientation, not looking at the pattern of the stars in the night sky the way. Old Mariners did, but the the fact that part of the night sky does not appear to move uh, that portion around Polaris that does not appear to rotate we know that they can they can navigate using extremely low-frequency sound waves, that some seabirds can you know, smell their way home across thousands of miles of ocean, that they birds that like swallows and, and raptors that migrate during the day can use the position and apparent movement of the sun across the sky and a band of polarized light that moves across the sky in the day. They've all these um, navigational tools, but they also have a magnetic sense. And that's always been the biggest mystery because we couldn't quite figure out how it worked. We've known since at least the 1950s or 60s that it was somehow tied into vision but again, it, it made no sense. And actually, there was a, a German-born scientist named Klaus Schulten who uh, was at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, who came up with what turned out to be the explanation in the nineteen seventies. Where, as you say, he thought this was involved with quantum entanglement, which is, you know, the form of quantum physics that made even Einstein queasy. It was, you know, it was the result of his equations, but he didn't like it. You know, what he called it, spooky action at a distance, where. Essentially, what's happening at a quantum level within the eye of a migratory bird as it's flying through the night sky. As it flies through the Earth's magnetic field, pigment molecules in the bird's eye that have been activated by photons of light emitted from stars tens of millions of light years away create this essentially waves of pigment. It's how we're visualizing this that allows the bird to see the Earth's magnetic field as it's flying through it. Neil, do you know what I would give to see the Earth's magnetic mm, field? It must absolutely. be true it must be it must be remarkable and any wood warbler or you know or or chaffinch that's that's flying through the night sky migrating is going to see that so we keep peeling back the layers of the onion on how birds do what they do how you know physiologically how they're able to fly these extraordinary distances how they're able to navigate and orient which are you know really two different you know two different feats and within every within every one of these mysteries is another is another mystery and you know, it's like we it looks like they're using quantum entanglement but they also they also have a magnetic map sense that we don't quite understand which may be connected to the trigeminal nerve in that runs through their through their upper beak but we don't really quite know how that works so i mean it's so they're like nesting russian dolls every time we solve one mystery there's another one waiting for us inside so i've been talking to
1: scott widensall we've been talking about his book a world on the wing the global odyssey of migratory birds which is out in the uk from picador scott thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me
0: It's been an absolute delight neil thank you so much